1: i'm kathy with a k and
2: i'm kathy with a c and this is killer destinations today's destination is topeka kansas topeka is the capital of kansas and derives its name from the kansa osage native american language and it means a good place to dig potatoes no it is not ireland In 1857, Topeka was chartered as a city and is probably best known for its landmark U.S. Supreme Court case, Brown v. the Board of Education of Topeka, which was the case responsible for declaring that educational standards based on separate but equal were unconstitutional and racial integration was required in American public schools. Along those lines, Topeka was also home to the first black kindergarten west of the Mississippi. Topekans are understandably very proud of their civil rights history. And in Topeka today, you can currently enjoy a tour of the beautiful Capitol building, which by the way, if you wanna to get to the top of the dome, you have to be able to climb uh, almost 300 steps. I think it's 296 to be precise. But one of the coolest things about Topeka, Kansas is that it has the largest assortment of evil Knievel memorabilia in the world. Very cool. But in 2002, the city became known for a double homicide, where the court case to prosecute the alleged killer would make even bigger headlines than the murders themselves.
1: In 2002, Mike Cisco was 47 years old and had two kids he adored, 17-year-old Haley and 15-year-old Dustin. He lived in Topeka, Kansas and sold welding equipment for a living. He divorced his children's mother, Dana Chandler, five years earlier and had been dating 53-year-old Karen Harkness for the past four years. Karen was also divorced with two children from her previous marriage, but both of her children, Chad and Aaron, were adults and living on their own. On Saturday night, July 6, 2002, Mike and Karen headed to a casino just north of Topeka where they left the casino with more money than they had in their pockets when they got there.
2: I'm calling that a win. Me too. Winner, winner, chicken dinner.
1: <laughs> According to a 48 Hours Mystery episode, the next day, July 7th, 2002, Harold and Betty Warswick, Karen's mom and dad, along with Mike's mom, Carol Sisko, went over to Karen's house for a Sunday afternoon fish fry. All three were especially excited because they were expecting there would finally be an announcement that Mike and Karen were engaged. When they arrived at Karen's house, nobody answered after they rang the doorbell and knocked on the front door. Karen's parents and Mike's mom went inside and did not see anybody and called out, but received no reply. Mr. Warswick went downstairs to check Karen's bedroom, and as he got to the foot of the stairs, he could see Karen. She was lying face down on the bed, her head at an angle off the side of the bed, and he knew by looking at her she was dead. When he reached over and touched her, Karen was cold. Mike was on the floor next to the bed. Mr. Warswick said he could see that Mike had been shot a number of times and there was a lot of blood around him. He called 911 just after 2 p.m. He also kept his wife and Mrs. Sisko from going down the stairs so they would not see the horror he saw. Topeka detective Richard Volley said when he got the call, his first thought was this was a robbery gone wrong. But when he arrived at Karen's house, he noted that the electronics were still there and there was no forced entry. Mike had over $950 in his wallet that was still in his shorts, and Karen was wearing a Rolex, a diamond bracelet, and a gold ring and had over $350 in her purse.
2: Detective Volley first checked what Mike and Karen had done the night before and wound up at the casino. Casinos, of course, have cameras everywhere, so Volley was able to track their movements that night. He said it looked like they were having fun, and it didn't seem to him that they were having any issues with anyone, and he did not see anyone suspicious following them out to their car. One thing about the murders that stuck out to Detective Volley was the number of times Karen and Mike were shot. Mike was shot seven times, and Karen was shot five times, which the detective took as overkill. And since the police were able to rule out robbery as a motive fairly quickly— They believed this was a case of revenge. Investigators interviewed close family members initially focusing on Karen's ex-husband and their adult son, Chad. Both Chad and her ex-husband agreed to take a polygraph exam, and they were quickly eliminated as suspects. Mike's daughter, Haley, and her boyfriend, Chris Seal, were also considered possible suspects. Haley said at that time in her life, she was angry at everything, and her dad was the primary target. So, Kath, my understanding is that after Mike and his ex-wife Dana got divorced, he got full custody of the kids, and Dana was living in Colorado, and there was just a lot of anger and resentment all around.
1: Well, and even back in 1997, it was odd for the dad to not only get full custody of the children,
2: but he also got child support. Which is incredible. Yeah, so, anyway, so Haley said that her dad did not like her boyfriend Chris, and Chris was a stereotypical bad boy. Uh, anyway, so because she was so angry, Haley spent most of her time with her boyfriend. Mike gave her an ultimatum follow my rules or move out. So, Haley moved in with Chris, and shortly thereafter, her father was killed. Can you imagine? No, I can't. No. Mike's sister, Kathy Boots, and her husband, Mark, also thought Haley and Chris might be involved in the murders because of how angry and hateful Haley had become towards her dad. Detectives interviewed both of them and searched Chris's home from top to bottom. But ultimately, Detective Volley said that after all the checking and searches they did, there was nothing to suggest that either one of them killed Mike or Karen.
1: All the leads in Topeka went nowhere. But Detective Volley had one other person who seemed like they might be a viable suspect, Mike's ex-wife, Dana Chandler. Mike and Dana were married for 16 years before going through a long and ugly divorce. Mike was actually the one who initiated it. Dana struggled with alcohol addiction during this time and lost custody of Haley and Dustin, as we mentioned, when the court ruled that Mike was a more stable parent. In the divorce settlement, Mike got the family home, and as we said before, Dana was ordered to pay child support. At this point, Dana was living in Denver, Colorado, and when Detective Volley called Dana on July 7th, this is the day of the murders, to notify her about Mike being murdered, there were a number of questions she never asked that struck Volley as suspicious. So, for instance, when he called and said, you know, I regret to inform you, she never asked where he was when he was killed, were the kids with him when he was murdered, so were they hurt or killed as well, um, any of those things. So four days after Mike's death, Detective Volley was able to interview Dana at her attorney's office while she was in Topeka for Mike's funeral. When the detective asked where she was on July 6th and 7th, Dana told him she was at home Saturday morning on July 6th, this is the day before the murder, and ran a couple errands. She said she bought cigarettes, snacks, and a coffee thermos and a replacement cigarette lighter at various stores around Denver before she then filled up her car with gas. She said she returned home around 3 p.m., and stayed in the apartment by herself for the rest of the day and night. The next day, July 7th, she said she woke up and went for a drive in the mountains around 10 a.m. again by herself. Since Dana was in Topeka for Mike's funeral, a police officer went to Denver on July 11th and 12th to search her apartment and investigate her alibi.
2: On July 15th, 2002, so eight days after the murder, Dana was arrested in Topeka on a child support warrant. She had fallen months and months behind on her payments to Mike. Her car was seized and searched, but no evidence linking Dana to the murders was found in her car. Now, Kath, when I read this, I know they were like, we have got to find some way to arrest her. So if you're arrested in your vehicle and your car is taken, they can search it.
1: And kids, it tells you you don't have a warrant. Because the police will be able to get you. If she didn't have a warrant,
2: they couldn't have done it. Yeah, that's that's true. (laughs) Stay out of trouble, kids. Stay out of trouble. (laughs) The more you know. (laughs) Brought to you by, (laughs) they find nothing in her car. So in Detective Woolley's eyes, Dana was the primary suspect, but they did not have a murder weapon. And at the time, she was living 500 miles away from Topeka in Denver, Colorado. The police did not have anything linking Dana to the killings. There was no trace of her in Kansas during the two-day time frame. Detectives still kept looking for something that would point to Dana as the murderer and became even more interested in her whereabouts on July 6th and 7th when they discovered that she failed to tell them about two items that she had purchased— In the initial interview of Dana, which was four days post-murder, she gave detectives a list of the things that she purchased. But she And it
1: was a detailed list. It I was... mean, it was exactly. snacks and a replacement cigarette lighter for the one she'd lost. Not even right. just a cigarette lighter.
2: Exactly. Well, she failed to mention that she purchased two five-gallon gas cans. Detective Woolley thought the five-gallon gas cans were... A very strange purchase.
1: Made even stranger by the fact that she never said anything to him. Correct. And that's the whole thing, is that it could have been just totally innocent, but you leave them off a list like that, and you're going to get looked at twice.
2: And look at the list. It's right. gas cans. It's cigarettes. It's snacks. It's, it's road snacks. I it's mean, a thermos, a coffee right, thermos. exactly. You're all, going on a road trip. All of these things imply a road trip. Except I, for
1: the cigarettes and the cigarette lighter, we pretty much do that before we go to the hashtag the best lake. <laughs> Except for it's just snacks. And if
2: we're super drunk, maybe the cigarettes are included. <laughs> She's talking about herself. Anyway, police also realized there was a 27-hour window of time on July 6th and 7th where her phone and credit cards were not used at all. Dun, dun, dun. Exactly. So obviously they're thinking, what are they thinking? They're thinking she dipped. <laughs> she dipped. I should not have done that. p e
1: d Dipped. dipped.
2: <laughs> So police opine that Dana spent Saturday night, July 6th, driving the 542 miles from Denver to Topeka to murder Mike and Karen using the gas cans to avoid having to make a stop in Kansas. And by the way, let's picture a map. Kansas is right in front of us. It's a rectangular state. Above Kansas is Nebraska. Also a rectangular state. Exactly. To the left is Colorado literally it from topeka if you had almost exactly due west straight line yeah you're gonna hit denver colorado in about seven hours i'd say Yeah,
1: about that depending on who's driving
2: exactly
1: <laughs> <laughs> i could do it in five and a half
2: <laughs> but detective bully realized he needed eyewitnesses who could place dana in kansas at the time of the murder so he sent two detectives along interstate 70 they traveled west toward Denver looking for any convenience store that had video surveillance. I love this kind of detective work, by the way, where they just like they pound the pavement. Right. Anyway, at a truck stop in Waukini, Kansas, they got a break. Now, Waukini, well, you looked it up. Where is it?
1: So it's due west from Topeka going toward Denver, and it's about four hours away.
2: There were no cameras at this truck stop, but a clerk named Patty Williams said she was 70 percent certain that Dana Chandler stopped there the night of the murders to use the bathroom.
1: Well, there were a couple things that she said. Now, first of all, if you look at any pictures of Dana, she had eyes that you would never forget. Her eyes were almost transparent. You saw pictures of her, didn't you? I did. You know, somebody has like such strikingly light eyes. You just can't help but pay attention to them. It's almost like cat's eyes. Meow. <laughs> she just had very distinctive features. So honestly, if you ran across her, you would remember what she looked like. But Ms. Williams, the clerk at the truck stop, said Dana had looked at a selection of self-help books that they had in the truck stop, which
2: I didn't know truck stops had that, but I good know. for them. Good to know.
1: And then the other thing that Detective Volley pointed out is that the way that Ms. Williams described Dana is that she had a small crease at the side of her mouth. Now, actually, it was a crease, but Ms. Williams actually said she had a scar and described it exactly like the crease Oh, that's like.
2: interesting. With this, Detective Foley thought he had enough to arrest Dana and went to the Shawnee County District Attorney, Robert Heck, who told him they did not have enough evidence to put Dana in Kansas at the time of the murders. So, Kath, I believe that even though she may have purchased this book, she is cash. There was no... Electronic record. Exactly. And so the district attorney basically was like, sorry, a 70 percent identification on some lady who had no other, you know, video or electronic footprint in Kansas. That's not going to fly.
1: And of all of the other people at the truck stop that night, nobody
2: else remembered her. In May of 2003, 10 months after the murder, Dana's hair was collected to compare her DNA with hair and fiber samples from the crime scene. The samples were not a match. Dana eventually moved to Oklahoma, and the Cisco Harkness murder investigation went cold in 2003.
1: The Cisco family 100% believed Dana Chandler was the killer, so without police actively investigating the case anymore, they actually started doing their own investigation looking for evidence the police might have missed. Mike's sister Kathy said she and her mother actually went from truck stop to truck stop along I-70 not only did they take pictures of Dana with them to see if there was anybody else that remembered her, but Kathy said they also, not one of us, Kathy said they also went into bathrooms and they would stand on the toilets and lift up the ceiling tiles to see if maybe she stashed a murder weapon up there or bloody clothes wow. yeah, or something like that. So they were 100% saying, we don't care that they're not investigating. We're going to keep doing Dang, this. Dang,
2: I did not realize that. That's awesome. Isn't that awesome? Yeah.
1: I mean, all of the Cisco family members knew that Dana had been stalking Mike ever since the divorce five years prior, mm-hmm. and Dana kept making all these surprise appearances in Kansas. They even became so frequent that Mike started keeping a journal to keep track of all the appearances. So he had a June 23rd, 1998 entry that just said, Dana called police, accused me of drinking when picked up Dustin. A month later, July 28th of the same year, Dana stalking neighborhood at 830 caught her she left. And then on November 12th that year, so this is just five or six months later, Dana came in house while I was at Karen's from 7 o'clock to 11 o'clock, went through stuff, caught her walking out back door when I came in, called police. Goodness. No kidding. I wonder if they actually locked their doors in Topeka.
2: I know. How is she getting into his house <laughs> all the time? Exactly. I mean, who knows? Maybe she had one of the kids' keys. Who knows?
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. In the 48 Hours episode, according to Mike's brother-in-law, Mark Boots, the last time Dana showed up was one month before the murders. Mike found Dana inside his house drinking a cup of coffee. Creepy. Absolutely. She told him that the kids were getting older and now they were having different issues and struggles and they needed both of their parents. So she said they needed to move back in and co-parent.
2: You know, she was like, how can I make it seem like I'm here naturally? Oh, I know. I'm just going to sit here with a cup of coffee. Exactly.
1: And (laughs) talk about the kids when he comes home from work that night. Hi, dear. How was your day?
2: (laughs) That is so creepy.
1: Mike's response to creepy Dana. Are you effing crazy? I'm marrying Karen. So this is May 2002, about six weeks before the murders. And Mike's sister Kathy and her husband Mark believe it was probably the first time Mike had mentioned to Dana anything about marrying Karen and they believe that this was the final rejection that pushed Dana over the edge you know she comes hat in hand oh we need to move back in together and he was like get out crazy lady I'm marrying someone else right
2: she's like but I have coffee in my hand you can't kick me out
1: (laughs) (laughs) Mark was haunted by a conversation he had with Mike during a trip just a week before the murders Mike said to him, you're going to wake up and find me dead, and I want you to know who did it, Dana Chandler.
2: That's incredible.
1: What kind of fear had Mike and Karen been living in for Mike to make that statement about the mother of his children?
2: Talk about ominous. Absolutely. Another key point for Mark Boots was the 27-hour period when Dana didn't use her cell phone. So Kath, basically, he said she was constantly on her cell phone and never went anywhere without it. And he did not believe that there was a snowball's chance in hell that 27 hours could go by without her using her phone.
1: And you know who he would never say that about? Me. Exactly.
2: (laughs) (laughs) He'd be only 27 hours. (laughs) Exactly. It is not unusual for me not to have my cell phone on me. I feel so tethered when I have it with me.
1: And not to have it with her when it's with her, not to answer text messages, not to answer her phone when it rings. But we respect that. And actually, to be honest with you, I actually fall more in your line than, say, my sister does. Yeah.
2: Your sister is? Cell phone Marie. She's totally cell phone Marie. So in an effort to revitalize the case in 2007, the Topeka police commissioned an independent analysis of the evidence. And this was because the family was banging down the door.
1: So they can't have the family, like, outclass their investigation. Totally.
2: Can you imagine? They're in one of the bathroom stalls and they find the murder weapon. (laughs) Could you imagine that? I could totally see us doing that, though. And not just because of the podcast. We would totally have our chick squad. Absolutely. Yeah. No, we would be pounding the pavement.
1: And we've got the chief with us, so we'd have all the police background we needed. Yeah, chiefy
2: chief would be bossing us around. And we
1: have 800 attorneys in our corner. Mm -hmm. And then I would do all the press statements. Right.
2: (laughs) According to an episode of 48 Hours Mystery, retired New York Lieutenant Commander Vernon Gebreth, who was considered to be an expert in homicide investigations, authored a report that concluded Dana Chandler is the one and only person who had the motive, means, and opportunity to commit these murders, unquote. Dang. Then there was a change in leadership at Topeka's district attorney's office. While Chad Taylor was running to be the Shawnee County District Attorney in 2008, he promised that he would look into the Mike Cisco Karen Harkness murder case. Now, Kathy, you had a really good impression of him when you saw videos of him, right?
1: I did. <laughs> so as anybody who's listened to our podcast in the past know, Kathy does not take a, a shine to prosecutors who were just mouthpieces and they have all the glib comments and You know, they're just kind of there for the the grandstanding. Exactly. Grandstanding. That was your word. Yeah. This guy. And I apologize to people who fit into this description (laughs) or Or we don't (laughs) was the douchiest of frat bros you're ever going to meet. And he had every one liner in the world. I'm sure he was a great attorney. (laughs)
2: Yeah, exactly. Anyway, Chad Taylor promises if he wins the election, he is going to magnanimously Look into the murders, which, of course, the family's happy with because any light shining on this is exactly what they want. So Taylor did just that. He and chief deputy district attorney Jackie Spradling, who was a very, very experienced trial attorney, worked the case up for two years before finally deciding there was enough circumstantial evidence to get a conviction. They basically decided, hey, it's strong enough. We can do this. Let's put her on trial.
1: Well, and they said that, you know, people have been convicted on less circumstantial evidence than they had. They felt what they had was really strong. Right. According to court records, in July of 2011, nine years after Mike Cisco and Karen Harkness were murdered, the Topeka Police Department coordinated a two-week surveillance gathering operation in Oklahoma. This is where Dana Chandler now lived. The operation was done by a task force of Topeka police officers, Kansas Bureau of Investigation special agents, and Oklahoma law enforcement officers. A Topeka police detective said the surveillance was done so that, quote, a safe interview could be conducted and at a point after that a safe arrest could be made, end quote. Police also searched Dana Chandler's house, which was actually at this point it was a mobile home on her sister's property behind her sister's house. hmm and they searched her sister's house as well. There was no evidence found linking Dana to the crimes. Despite this, Dana Chandler was arrested on July 25, 2011, and charged with two counts of premeditated first-degree murder. Eight months later, and almost 10 years after the murders, trial began in March 2012. The state was relying on circumstantial evidence, as we mentioned, and in her opening statements, Deputy DA Jackie Spradling said, quote, I could kill him. I thought about killing him. These are the words of this defendant about her ex-husband, Mike Sisko, end quote. And emphasis is added, but fairly well reflected from what I saw in the trial. Right. As Deputy DA Spradling wove the story of what happened the night Mike and Karen were killed, she told the jury that while they did not know exactly where Dana was during the 27 hours she could not account for her time, the police did know that at 6.01 p.m. on Sunday night, July 7, 2002, so this is the same day that the murder was discovered, mm-hmm. Dana ended up in Loveland, Colorado, which was 57 miles north of her hometown in Denver. While in Loveland, she bought a full tank of gas and went to Walmart for some new clothes. Deputy DA Spradling had an interesting theory to explain how Dana got to Loveland. So while they theorized that Dana had taken a direct route from Denver to Topeka, we talked about going straight across. Straight east. yes, Straight east, almost a straight line. Rather than taking that same route back, they believed that Dana wanted to get out of Kansas as quickly as possible, so that she drove straight up to Nebraska. As Kathy said, it's a big rectangle on top of the big rectangle (laughs) of Kansas. She drove straight up there to the state line and headed west from there. The reason they believed this is that if you headed west from Nebraska to Colorado,
2: you would land in Loveland. Where she purchased a full tank of gas on the night of the murder.
1: Exactly. Deputy DA Spradling believed Dana used those two five-gallon gas cans to get her out of Kansas after the murders without a trace. However, prosecutors did not present any evidence that Dana had ever been in Nebraska.
2: According to court records, the prosecutors admitted considerable evidence that Dana Chandler engaged in obsessive behavior toward Mike and Karen, making numerous phone calls to each of them, verbally accosting them, spying on them at their homes and in public places, entering Mike's home without permission, and trying to reconcile with Mike up to several weeks before the murders. When Dana Chandler was interviewed by police, she told them she only talked to Mike every few months, but contrary evidence showed that was false. Alice Casey, who was an FBI crime analyst, testified Dana Chandler placed 645 calls to Mike's home phone, Mike's cell phone, and Karen's home phone between January and July of 2002. Some were episodes of rapid calling, meaning she made 22 calls in 31 minutes or she made 12 calls in 13 minutes. There were a number of incidents of these rapid calls. Casey also testified that out of 269 days of subpoenaed records, only 12 days showed no phone activity, including July 6th. That's actually surprising to me that there were any days at all. I agree with you. I mean, I agree with you. Is that what you mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, I really mean it. I mean, I agree with you. <laughs>
1: Thank you. That's very validating.
2: <laughs> so Dana had no calls on July 6th. And then on July 7th, Dana Chandler received two calls, but she didn't actually pick up her phone, but she made no calls out. Correct. Detective Volley later testified that on Friday, July 5th, so two days before the murder, Dana Chandler called Mike seven times. And the second call lasted five minutes. After that, Dana called back five more times.
1: I wonder if the five minutes that showed the connection, I wonder if she was leaving a voicemail on his
2: phone. Yeah, I have no idea. It would still show a connection. There was no evidence at trial as to actually what was said during that five-minute phone call. Bonjour. Parlez-vous français? Me neither. (laughs) Despite the fact that I paid for it in college, which is why I need Rosetta Stone, and so do you. As
1: you all know, I've used Rosetta Stone in the past for my German, and it's wonderful. And in fact, my niece is going to be studying abroad this fall, and she's going to be using Rosetta Stone so that she can learn the language and have a much more enriching experience while she's abroad. Rosetta Stone has been the trusted expert for 30 years with millions of users and 25 languages offered.
2: And they have speech recognition, which gives you feedback on your pronunciation.
1: They also have two different options available to use it. It's available both on your desktop and through an app.
2: Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, Killer Destinations listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today today.
1: prosecutors wanted to convict Dana with her own words. It turns out the question of where she was the night of the murders had at least three different answers. Dana first told Detective Volley the story about spending the night of the murders at home and the next day driving through Rocky Mountain National Park. The problem for her was that the park had cameras at every entrance that recorded the license plates of every single visitor. Law enforcement officers watched countless hours upon hours upon additional hours of video from the
2: cameras.
1: (laughs) Countless. Mm -hmm. From the cameras going into and out of the park and her car was never seen. In the weeks after the murder, Dana called an acquaintance and asked him for a referral for an attorney. During that conversation, she told him she was in Denver all weekend on July 6th and 7th. Shortly after that... In the month following the murder, Dana talked to a friend named Jeff Bailey to ask for money for her defense. He testified at trial that Dana said to him that the story she was giving him was the truth and the story she gave law enforcement was not the truth. According to Bailey, Dana told him she went camping and slept in her car on the night of the murders. The problem with that story is the route she took back in July of 2002 was when there were historic fires that were blackening Colorado. But when Bailey asked about it, she said she did not see any fires. Prosecutors pointed out that the landscape she said she drove through would have been completely black and charred with just nubs where the trees used to be. If Dana was there, there was no way that she could have been there without seeing this burned land. So when I was living in Lake Tahoe, I moved there in in October, and this is the summer after that. It was actually Fourth of July weekend. And I lived on the Nevada side. And there was a gondola that was just on the state line that took people from the base of the lake up to the top of Heavenly Mountain. And somebody decided to throw a lit cigarette out of the gondola. It went up. Now, I lived at the very, very top. That was the
2: scariest place. She's like, oh, bring your kids and come visit me. And I felt like. Actually, I don't think I said bring your kids. Yeah. (laughs) Well, uh, yeah, I probably had to bring them regardless. (laughs) I was worried about all my little rugrats like falling off this cliff. And you're like, isn't the view beautiful? (laughs) The view was beautiful, though. (laughs) It was. It was.
1: But this fire was so bad. When I drove back up home, and of course, I'm driving through the forest to get there, you can't miss that.
2: Oh, yeah. Okay, so one by one, prosecution witnesses described what they called Dana's stalking. Mike's sister, Kathy, testified about a night she and her husband, Mark, stayed at Mike's house during the divorce. She woke up in the middle of the night and heard a strange noise, like a spring—boing, boing, boing—exactly. Boing. <laughs> in the backyard, Kathy and Mark looked out the window and saw Dana on the trampoline jumping up and down, not saying anything, just laughing. Can you imagine? No, it's dude, like a, it's like a horror movie. That's like like looking out your window at nighttime and seeing like a clown. Exactly. <laughs>
1: like, <laughs> like exactly. And all you hear is the boing,
2: boing, oh, boing. totally, totally. Anyway, Kathy testified that that's when Dana's stalking escalated. Mike's brother, Tim, testified about a get-together. They had Mike's backyard in 2001, and he happened to look up, and Dana was just driving by. She lived in Colorado at the time.
1: Okay. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. So other prosecution witnesses said Mike and Karen lived in fear before they were murdered, both of them receiving incessant phone calls and harassing voicemail messages at all hours of the night. I read something in a newspaper that said Karen's
1: daughter, Erin, had played some of those voicemails for her. And they were so bad that Karen was actually thinking about breaking up with Mike because of it.
2: Oh, I I am sure that was probably something in the back of her brain. And she lives in a house by herself. You can't escape that, you right. know, like you, no. mar- you marry this guy, you marry his ex-wife. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's part of the picture. right. Mark Boots was scheduled to testify at trial about the conversation he had with Mike when Mike told him that if he got killed, it was Dana. And Dana Chandler's defense attorney, Mark Bennett, objected, saying it was hearsay, and the judge agreed. And frankly, I agree with this ruling. This was not a dying declaration. There's actually a hearsay exception in the law that if somebody is dying and they make these extemporaneous statements, they're admissible. The idea being death is imminent you know you're dying. You're going to speak the truth. So if he were dying and his brother-in-law Mark heard him say, Dana did this, that would probably have been admissible. But anyway, there was too much time between the statement and Mike's death to make it admissible. So the jury never heard that part. The prosecution was also unable to have Patty Williams testify. Now, this was the truck stop clerk, who recognized Dana, said she was 70% sure it was Dana, and gave a description to the officers. And knew what she was reading? Exactly, exactly. But Patty Williams did not testify because she died prior to the trial, years prior to the trial, in fact. And any statements that she made to detectives would have been hearsay, so they were not admissible. And the funny thing was, the prosecutor was rather desperate, frankly. Like, she was bummed because Patty was the only person who could put Dana in Kansas at the time of the murder.
1: And so without her, they have nobody
2: who can say with any certainty or not. Correct. So the prosecutor brings to the stand one of Patty's co-workers who was such a weak witness. Well, of
1: course. Yeah.
2: And, and and she was trying to, like, sort of, like, get information in the back door. Now, don't tell me what Patty said, but did Patty describe such and such? Yes. You know what I mean? Like, it was just kind of a cheap attempt at leaving the jurors with the impression that were Patty alive, she would have identified Dana. Mike and Dana's children also testified. Prosecutors wanted Dustin, now 25 years old, to testify about Dana using visitations with him and Haley to stalk their father. Dustin did testify that Dana did not hide her strange behavior from them when they were growing up. He once found her snooping through Mike's paperwork in the kitchen when she came to pick him up, even though he expected her to wait outside. He also testified about a time when he was 12 and Haley was 14 when Dana took the two kids with her to stalk their dad and tried to make a game out of it for them. She was definitely spying on their father, watching everything he did, and peeking in the windows. Dustin was fairly stoic during his testimony until Deputy District Attorney Spradling asked him how he found out about his father being murdered. Dustin was away on a canoe trip, and his grandmother and sister showed up. Dustin told his sister and his grandmother that his father was supposed to pick him up the next morning and was confused about why they were there. And probably
1: didn't want to go home early.
2: Yeah, exactly. And his grandmother pulled him aside and explained that his father was murdered. Deputy D.A. Spradling concluded by asking if his dad or Karen had trouble with anyone other than Dana Chandler, his mother, and Dustin said no.
1: When now 27-year-old Haley testified, it was revealed that during the years after the murders, she secretly recorded phone conversations with her mother, hoping Dana would reveal something that Haley could use against her one day. Haley did not want to believe it was her mom— But every time Haley spoke to her, Haley said it was more and more apparent to her that Dana was hiding something.
2: This is so insane.
1: It's so sad. She was 17. Haley's recordings with her mom were played in court. It was on one of these recordings that Dana tried to explain why she bought the two five-gallon gas cans. Dana told Haley that she ran into a girl who had run out of gas at an AA meeting. Dana had an alcohol problem, and she's been sober, and she's been attending AA meetings for years. The girl asked Dana for money, and Dana told Haley they do not give people money at AA, so Dana went out and got gas for her. Haley asked for the girl's name and told her mom if she could just get a hold of this girl and have her say that it was true, it would really be helpful. And Dana responded by saying she had no idea what the girl's name was. So, Kathy, one other thing I wanted to bring up. On the 48 Hours episode... They actually showed video of the actual trial. There was a time when both sets of attorneys were called to the judge's bench. All of their backs were to the courtroom. And you see Dana mouthing something to Haley, who is still on the stand. I found it hard to read Dana's lips because it looked like she was barely moving them. However, 48 Hours reported and Haley actually concurred. What Dana mouthed to her was, I still love you. It's okay. I'll always love you. Haley broke down. She'd been very stoic to this point. I can't
2: possibly imagine.
1: And a few minutes later, Dana seemed to mouth to her again, you're my baby girl. Damn. Now, the defense case was simple. Mark Bennett, Dana Chandler's lawyer, told the jury, There is no evidence that places Dana in or near the Harkness residence on July 6th or 7th, 2002 he argued that the reason there was no evidence linking Dana to the crime was because she did not do it. Period. End of story. When it was the defense's turn to present their case, attorney Bennett called a series of officers to the stand who had investigated burglaries not far from Karen's home. Bennett said the burglaries had striking similarities to this case, including the fact that sliding glass doors had been found open. The other thing that Bennett pointed out was that in some of these robberies, blank checks had been stolen. And the two men who did it were also found in possession of one of Mike's checks. Bennett said these were bad men with long rap sheets and many convictions. So why weren't they considered as suspects? Right. And it's true. These two men were caught trying to cash one of Mike's checks. However, prosecutors were able to find that the check had not been stolen from Karen Harkness's house where the murders occurred, but rather had been stolen from Mike's house. Prosecutors also disputed the theory because whoever committed the murders left behind watches, as we talked about, the Rolex watch, gold jewelry, more than $1,300 in cash. However, Bennett argued back that police ignored other suspects, saying investigators made up their minds that his client was guilty, even though there was nothing concrete they could find to link her to the murders. Bennett used Detective Foley to make that point. Bennett asked if there was any physical evidence hairs, fibers, receipts, anything that placed Dana in Topeka, Kansas, or even in the state of Kansas, Foley had to admit that there was no physical evidence. Bennett also brought up that when the case was reopened, there was one tiny piece of physical evidence. It was a very small human hair on one of the shell casings that was found in Karen's bedroom. The hair did not match Dana or either of the victims, and authorities did not test it further And Bennett argued that the hair could have belonged to the real killer.
2: Shortly before trial began, prosecutors were able to get transcripts of a jailhouse conversation Dana had with her sister Shirley, and the prosecutor Spradling included them in her closing arguments. Now, just a heads up, Kath. This prosecutor had 12 hours of jailhouse conversations, and there was hardly anything used. And so basically when people are in jail, any conversation they have on the phone, not for their attorney, is automatically recorded and detectives can review it. But for example, I know in L.A. County, if you're a lawyer, you have your phone number registered with the jail. So if a client makes a call to you from a jail, it's not recorded. So here's a conversation that Dina had with her sister. The prosecutor hasn't said anything, but it kind of came up today. You know they keep wanting to talk about Patty Williams? And her sister says, I don't know who that is.
1: I don't know who that is.
2: Dana says, she is, uh, remember how we told you about that book in Waukini that they said I bought in Waukini, Kansas, and I said I didn't? And her sister says, oh, yeah, yeah, that girl. And Dana says, well, anyway, she's dead. And the sister says, I know, that is huge for you. And Dana says, the prosecutor keeps trying to sneak in what she said. Because that, you know, little piece of information could potentially put me in Kansas, but that is the only thing. And her sister says, I mean, I am feeling. Today was such a good day. I mean, I was just in awe. So that conversation was used during closing argument. District Attorney Spradling told the jury that Dana was celebrating with her sister Shirley the fact that Williams was dead and could not testify against her. The prosecutor wrapped up her closing arguments by saying, quote, How else do we know the defendant is guilty? Mike got a protection from abuse, a court order. He applied and said, hey judge, please order this woman to stay away from me, and the judge agreed. And in 1998, meaning one year after he filed for divorce, he was continuing to have problems with the defendant, not leaving him alone. So he got a court order saying she has to stay away. The protection from abuse order did not stop the defendant though. End quote.
1: So I'm assuming a protection from abuse is similar to a restraining order.
2: Yes, it's like a restraining order in California. But it's after a hearing and it's court approved.
1: Defense Attorney Bennett was succinct in his closing argument. Where is the evidence? All this time they've been trying to put her in Kansas. For nine and a half years they came up dry, except for Patty Williams who didn't get to testify because she had passed away. The case went to a jury at 2.37 p.m. 83 minutes later, at 4 p.m., there was a verdict. Guilty on two counts of first-degree murder. 83 minutes. 83 minutes. Wow. Dana Chandler, no reaction at all. Stoic, looked straight ahead, didn't blink, didn't do anything. Mike Sisko's family members, including his mom and his son Dustin and his daughter Haley, collapsed
2: the combination of emotions that must take place at a guilty verdict I can't imagine
1: Haley had been fighting for this for 10 years after court she said I don't feel victorious I don't think there are any winners at all there's justice but that's about it my dad is not coming back and neither is Karen and that's the truth that's the bottom line even though the jury never had a chance to hear Patty Williams testimony after the trial, a juror actually told the media it was because of Dana's jailhouse conversation with her sister the jurors believed that Ms. Williams must have seen her at the truck stop because why would the sisters have celebrated like that? Five months later, Dana had a sentencing hearing at which she represented herself. She told the court, quote, I absolutely deny I ever stalked Mike or Karen and there's been no evidence presented that I did. But most importantly, I deny that I murdered Mike or Karen. I am innocent. I did not murder Mike or Karen. End quote. Six members of Mike and Karen's families told Dana what she did to them with the murders and asked the judge to give her a life sentence. Haley spoke for herself and Dustin We each have a scar on our souls from what this monster has done. But I will stand here today and tell you that we are survivors. We will live the fullest lives that we can because that is what my dad would have wanted for us. Dana could care less about us and our struggles, but my dad wants us to flourish while we are on this earth, and that's what we're going to do. Dana then looked up to the ceiling and said, for you, dad. The judge gave Dana two life sentences and was told she must serve 100 years before she is
2: eligible for parole. After her conviction, Dana Chandler filed an appeal with the Kansas Supreme Court. The court heard oral arguments on January 27, 2016, three and a half years after she was found guilty. Dana Chandler argued several items, including the sufficiency of the evidence used to convict her. Kath, this is really important because she went through a full jury trial. So if the Court of appeal said, hey... There was not sufficient evidence to convict her. She would have been completely free because it would have invoked the double jeopardy clause of the Constitution where you can't be tried twice for the same crime. So there were high stakes in this argument. And the Court of appeal said, look, it was reasonable for this jury to conclude that you were guilty. Dana Chandler also alleged several claims of prosecutorial misconduct. One of her big arguments Was that the district attorney who was prosecuting the case, Jackie Spradling, told the jury that Mike got a protection from abuse court order against her because he was having continued problems with her, not leaving him alone. So, Deputy DA Spradling raised this in closing arguments. And she even went so far as to say that the protection from abuse order did not stop the defendant. However, There never was a protection from abuse order. At the first oral argument, the court of appeal challenged the prosecutor and was like, hey, you know, you're raising this issue in the record and you're allowing the jury to infer that there was a court order in place, that there wasn't one. Like, what the heck? So she has the nerve to say the detectives testified that it was. So what the court of appeal did was they analyzed the detective's testimony and you can tell That this district attorney was walking this detective down the garden path, and it was pre-planned and premeditated, and he said, yes, there was a protection from abuse order in the divorce case. However, when
1: he was cross-examined, defense attorney Bennett asked him the same question and said, it doesn't really exist, does it? And he said, I have no recollection of that. And you can't use that as an example of the order being in place when the minute he was cross-examined, he said, Yeah, and I really don't remember that. Yeah,
2: I don't recall that. The prosecutor's office was essentially trying to defend themselves from the court of appeal, but the court of appeal was having none of it. They're like, no, no. You brought up this very, very serious lie, and we know you lied about it because in pretrial motions, you raised the issue yourself. A month before trial, they're making their motions about what should and should not come in, And in one of the prosecution's motion, it states, quote, Mike Sisko requested an immediate restraining order on October 15, 1998, indicating that this defendant intentionally, maliciously, repeatedly followed and harassed him, destroyed personal property of his acquaintances, and had engaged in telephone harassment, end quote. Now, this is a motion by the prosecution so Deputy D.A. Spradling, she knows that Mike Cisco requested an order, but there's not an order on file. The court determined that this error was, in fact, harmful error and deprived Dana Chandler of her right to a fair trial. In Dana Chandler's case, there was no direct evidence of guilt, and the record has no physical evidence placing her at the crime scene. So the state's route to conviction rested on convincing the jury that her obsessive and sometimes criminal behavior escalated to murder. The false statements about this made-up protection from abuse order helped the state fill in the blanks on its narrative. Another thing that this district attorney did that I found was appalling Remember, we talked about phone calls on July 5th. So this was Friday and the murder was on Sunday. The five-minute phone call. The five-minute phone call. That we said, you have no idea what was said, obviously. Exactly. So District Attorney Spradling made the argument in closing that this five-minute phone call is when Dana Chandler found out that Mike and Karen were getting married. So she took license with her presentation of evidence when she was arguing before the Supreme Court about these improper things that she did, part of her was like, well, you know, hey, this was lengthy and, it, you know, voluminous documents and lots of witnesses and it wasn't intentional and, and blah, and blah, blah, Hard blah, Barbie. Blah. Yeah, exactly. But no, it freaking was intentional because you took the most critical pieces of evidence, you made them up. The Court of Appeal basically said, taken as a whole, the prosecution unfortunately illustrates how a desire to win a case can eclipse the state's responsibility to safeguard the fundamental constitutional rights to a fair trial owed to any defendant facing criminal prosecution in a Kansas courtroom. So the Kansas Supreme Court threw out the convictions and granted Dana Chandler a new trial.
1: On December 7, 2020, an article by Steve Fry and Melissa Bruner was posted on the WIBW Kansas website there was a disciplinary hearing for former Deputy District Attorney Jackie Spradling regarding her improper actions during the Dana Chandler trial. These included lying to the Kansas Supreme Court and breaking the Kansas Rules of Professional Conduct. At the hearing, a man named Charles Kitt, who is the current Deputy District Attorney for Shawnee County, testified and said that he is prosecuting Dana Chandler's retrial and has discovered that some of the evidence... Jackie Spradling used to gain the 2012 conviction does not exist. The disciplinary case against Jackie Spradling also includes a case she prosecuted in another county. In this case, the Kansas Court of Appeals, which is the Kansas Supreme Court, overturned a defendant's conviction for rape and other sex crimes because of false statements Spradling made about the evidence in that case. On the fifth day of the hearing, which was December 11, 2020, WIBW reported that the Deputy Disciplinary Administrator, a man named Matthew Vogelsberg, asked the disciplinary panel to indefinitely suspend Jackie Spradling's law license. Spradling's defense attorney, L.J. Leatherman, told panel members his client should not receive any discipline. He said it did not make sense to discipline one of the best attorneys in Kansas for her prosecution work in the most difficult criminal case, of course, referring to Dana Chandler's case. On Friday, May 20th, 2022, so actually just five days prior to us recording this podcast, the Kansas Supreme Court disbarred Jackie Spradling for engaging in, quote, intolerable acts of deception and a serious pattern of grossly unethical misconduct, end quote, during the 2012 trial of Dana Chandler. Spradling can no longer practice law in Kansas. Now, I thought this was interesting, Kathy, though. One justice actually dissented, calling Jackie Spradling one of the most skilled, successful, and expert trial attorneys in the state, although he did acknowledge that she made mistakes that were serious and costly.
2: Since May of 2018, Chandler has been an inmate at the Shawnee County Jail, where she is being held on a $1 million bond. Her retrial is scheduled to begin August 1, 2022. In overturning the conviction and ordering a new trial, the Court of Appeal quoted from a book written by Robert H. Jackson, U.S. Attorney General, in 1940, and it said, The prosecutor has more control over life, liberty, and reputation than any other person in America. To suffer an abuse of power at the hands of an unethical prosecutor is one of the grossest inequities and indignities that can be visited upon a citizen by the state. Such abuse cannot be tolerated in a free society. Thank you for listening. We hope you liked the podcast. I hope you love my reference to Evil Knievel because I was obsessed with him when I was a kid. <laughs>
1: And if you have any suggestions for cases, please reach out to us.
2: We're at Killer Destinations Podcast. On Instagram and Facebook.